0: Hey, welcome to the Hive with Us podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Martinez. Today we have returning guest, Mr. Kevin Amosh from Pine Financial Group. He, if you have not heard of his other episodes, please go check it out. It's episode 371 and 374. Kevin, how are you doing today?
1: Daniel, I'm so happy to be back, man. I'm excited for it.
0: Yeah, it was kind of unexpected. I like having returning guests, but man, you're one of the people I definitely wanted back to have another conversation. I, I don't even remember what we talked about last time, but we're going to have a different conversation because I have some like deferring questions for you. Okay, good. Time. Because one thing I love about Kevin here today is Kevin is on the financial side of real estate, which is what I love. And it's always fun being on the finance side. But you, you've been in real estate 15 years, if I remember correctly. This is from me, my memory.
1: Yeah. So two decades in real estate and then I started Pine 15 years ago. So Pine's 15 years old. I was doing lending two years before that. So two decades real estate, 17 years and the lending side.
0: So last time we spoke, which is actually over the weekend, cause I was on your podcast. That's right. Can you right. plug your, you your podcast in real quick?
1: Yeah. The real estate educators podcast.
0: So I was just on his podcast and we're talking about how uh, Kevin loves what he does. So we're going to dive a little bit into why he loves the financial side of real estate and why it's the best part of real estate. Cause I, I think, I think me and Kevin are on the same page on this one. So first of all, please go check out the other episodes cause we're not going to repeat the same things here, but why, why is the financial side of real estate, the best side of real estate in your opinion?
1: Well, it's like what we talked about on, on my podcast when you came on. Um, it's, it's the deal structure, man. It's so you could be, so ridiculously creative in real estate when you, when you can negotiate, you know, the financing. So the deal structure, how you negotiate it, how you make your offer, how you present that offer, as you were telling me, with that amazing deal you just did, um, has everything to do with how you're going to finance it. And when you can start bringing in owner financing or private capital and keep the banks and institutions out of your, your business and your deal, man, it just opens up an entire world for you.
0: Are you still active on like the actual deal side or are you more on the lending side a hundred percent?
1: So no, I'm definitely still active investing. Um, I'm trying to to do much larger projects now. So I've got a portfolio of single family homes and I love them, hate them, you know, they're great, but I'm looking for, for the bigger profits at this point in my career. So we're looking at more larger commercial, doing some developments like you do. So that kind of, that kind of thing.
0: Okay. Okay. So you're active and you, so let's talk about that. So how do you you have a team? How big is your team for the active, and how big t- is your team for the the lending side?
1: Yeah, so the active is really just me. Not, okay. <laughs> you don't need a ton. I mean, I have my I can lean on my office so when I have tenants that call in or they want to bring in their t- their rent, and I have someone help me with the books. So it's pretty much all outsourced at this point. The lending side, man, we're just we're just rolling here. We'll do twenty twenty five deals a month. So I definitely need a team for that. There's, there's 13 of us on that side.
0: 13, 13 active on the, on the lending side.
1: On the, yeah, on the lending side. Right.
0: I mean, it's not bad. That's, that's not, that's not a bad, not, are they all virtual or are they in office?
1: Yeah. So if you add the virtual, we have two virtual assistants. Um, otherwise we have one person in Minnesota cause we do a ton of business out there. So we want boots on the ground there and then we have one person in Texas, Kim, she's amazing. She was my very first employee. So I hired her in January of 2009 wow. and she's still with me today. So we're like, sure, you want to go you want to go to Texas and and work remote, we're going to definitely give you that flexibility. So she's there. Everybody else is in our office here near Denver. Awesome.
0: That's okay. So that's why why have a person on the market specifically? Why is that important?
1: Yeah, and Maybe it's a little bit different on the lending side than the active side. Although I do think that you need some local, you know, local talent on the ground on the active side as well. But for us, we do a lot of construction lending and rehab and lending, so we need to go out and inspect the property and make sure that it's getting done correctly. Now I know you could outsource that to title companies, and there's national inspection firms and all of that, but. I want someone that I know and I trust to be giving me honest, accurate reporting. So that's why we decided to have a person on the ground in Minnesota. And we do quite a bit of loans out there, so it just it just makes sense.
0: So every every property you're doing a loan on, that person is going physically to the property and inspecting it.
1: Yeah, on, on the residential side, the commercial side is different. More sophisticated, high net worth borrowers. So we're not as concerned. Their you know their personal guarantee carries a lot more weight than someone that's Mm. kind of just getting started. Uh, But yes, uh, we want to look at every property.
2: This show is sponsored by Hivemind CRM
0: So one thing I have a question about that too, so I asked the commercial lender about this, but i ask you, but does your basis on l- you lending on the deal, as far as what's the difference between single family and uh, commercial property as far as that lender? Is it more to the deal or more to the lender or more to the lender, more to the deal? So I'm sure it varies for both.
1: Yeah, so on the, on the- on the residential side, we're very deal heavy. So we're like asset-based lending, right? So we don't care so much about credit as much, more now with the current environment, but we don't care as much about credit. We certainly don't care about a debt to income ratio, but you're not going to be servicing this loan with your income. This is typically short-term fix and flip or repositioning loans. So the asset itself is going to be what's paying us back, not you. So we don't care about income. but we want a good quality deal, right? If you're, not, if you're not getting into a deal that's going to be profitable for you, one of two things is going to happen. One, you're going to default on the loan, or two, you're going to not default, but lose money and then never do business with me again. So we want to be very careful with that. On the commercial side, we got some strong guarantees. So we're less concerned. I mean, I'm still concerned with the asset, but I'm more concerned with the personal guarantee and how strong that is. Um, and then on the asset side, we're, we lower our loan to value. And here's why we do that, Daniel. Commercial assets fluctuate. They're more volatile than a residential asset. And with, with what's coming with, I believe what's coming is some market softening on the commercial side. We want to be just a little bit more conservative. So we're, we're capping our loans at 65% of a stable value. And on the residential side, we're 70% of the as completed or after repaired value.
0: Gotcha, so essentially if they're commercial, they have to put up more capital because it is more volatile, so it gives you, it ensures your risk that you're putting in.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, cap rates have been so compressed for so long, and with interest rates high and remaining there, you have to see cap rates go up. And for the listeners that don't understand, it's an invert, inverted relationship, so if cap rates go up, values of the asset come down, you have to pay less to get a higher return, right? Um, so we're I believe we're going to see cap rates increase to keep up with this expensive lending environment
0: Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent It's just crazy to me because like it's it's barely like softening like people are still selling like You still Same see like, the, the four and five caps still out there I'm like interest rates at eight percent. What are you guys doing? Yeah? What do you think about that? <laughs> is, this, is that sustainable? I mean, it, it's, it's not, definitely not sustainable. It's just, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I get, I get both sides of it because some people are like, they're trying to sell now to exit to possibly still get that cap rate, but it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Well, what if you're entering at a four or five, like you say, and then by the time you're ready, it's repositioned and you're ready to, to exit, you're exiting at a seven, mm. which is probably where you should be. You know, seven or eight is what you should be at probably. And now you went from a five to a seven, that, that kills your, your value.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely hurts it in the long run. Any type of NOI or value increase is probably out the window at that point.
1: Totally. Yeah. Zero value increase. Even (laughs) if you increase the the income, which is the whole idea, you're still lost value at that point. You just keep it probably.
0: Yeah. Just cash flow. Are you doing like bridge loans or are you doing like long-term financing for this commercial stuff?
1: Yep, it's all bridge, all short term. Um, the the difference is to reposition a commercial asset is a lot longer than to fix and flip a house. Right, so you could be in and out of a house in four or five months. It's pretty common on the on the on the commercial side to reposition. It, it might take two years, and then you have to season the the new leases before the bank will look at it. So you might be two to three years to reposition something. So it's just a slower process.
0: I didn't realize you had to season the the leases. That's new.
1: Yeah. Not always, not always. Every lender, See, in the commercial space. It's not like, I mean, you have some institutional government institutional money like Fannie and Freddie in the multifamily world. But if you start talking about warehouses and retail, which we do a lot of, there's no, there's no big institution other than the banks that do that stuff. So every bank has, has their own different guidelines because they're keeping those loans on their portfolio. Hmm. Are you where think- I go too fast.
0: Are you you doing an adjustable rate for your, for your commercial loans
1: or is it? It's interesting you asked that. So I get that question a lot. It's crazy. Very few private bridge lenders do adjustable rates. They're just not set up to do that. So we have a high interest rate, but it's, it's not, it's not adjusting. And what's interesting about this is a lot of my peers in competition, their, their rates have gone up because they're getting so much of their money from lines of credit or from, you know, the capital markets, most of our capital is privately raised. So we have a pretty fixed cost of capital. So we've maintained our pricing through all of this crazy environment while all of our competitors are increasing. Um, and we've chosen to do that, Daniel, because uh, well, will think about this way, supply and demand, right? So there's an increased demand for bridge loans right now because capital constraints, banks are tightening. So demand is up, but our supply is still you know, maintaining similar levels. So that typically would drive up value, right? Price high demand, low supply. We've chosen to slow demand down by tightening guidelines a little bit, just being a little more conservative. We want a higher quality portfolio, so we've just tightened up a little bit instead of increasing prices. So everyone around us, prices are going up. We're maintaining.
0: That's that's really it's really cool because um, I, th- I think a lot of people they they there's a lot of different lenders out there, but I think that you having private capital which make sure your price is stabilized is priceless. Cause like I said, institution, if you have some type of institutional backing or some type of line of credit, like you have, to, you have to adjust. I mean, there's no other, there, there's no ifs for ands to It is what it is. You know, you have to adjust cause you, you, ha- you have to make sure you're covered.
1: Yeah. Think about this. One of our largest competitors in Colorado, they almost all of their capital is from lines of credit from different banks. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, when I was just getting started in this industry or with this business, you know, the the world was crumbling in around us. At least the credit markets was was, and their line of credit got shut off. So they had no more access to capital. Now they had all of these commitments in the pipeline, right, with no ability to fund. So mm-hmm. people started not getting their construction draws. People had deals that were getting ready to get to the closing table and there's no money for them, all of that just fell apart. Um so I think I think anyone that's highly reliant on lines of credit
0: could have some risk here. That's that's that man you as a as a me me as a as a as potential lendee doesn't even think about that, but I hope that right. hurt your ears everybody listening because that's that that that's scary.
1: Yeah. And it, and it, who knows what's going to happen? I don't think we're going to go through 2008 again, but that, and that was significant, right? But yeah. banks did shut lines of credit down. That was happening across the board. How many lenders went out of business because they weren't structured properly?
0: Mm. Is, is this, is this some experience or are you just <laughs> going from the beginning? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I started doing this in 2006, but I didn't, I wasn't able to go out and get lines of credit when you're, you can't get lines of credit when you're just starting because you might have a portfolio of let's say a million dollars, right? These, these lines of credit are 20, 30, 40 million. That's kind of the starting point yeah. and you need enough collateral to feed into that line to be able to to access, access it. So here's how it works. You know, the, let's say I have a hundred thousand dollar loan to keep it very simple we might have an advance rate on a line of 65%, maybe 70% if you're super lucky. So of that $100,000 that I put into a loan, I can now use that loan as collateral to draw maybe $65,000. Okay. So you definitely, your client usually has skin in the deal and then you as the lender has skin in the deal. So the bank is being very, very safe. Uh, but it doesn't give you a, you, to get access to a $20 million line, you need I don't know, twenty six, twenty seven million dollars of collateral to get that right. So it doesn't make sense when you're starting out.
0: Ooh. One thing uh, I think is crazy because, like, I, I think you're alluding to it, but like you starting out not being able to get those credit lines almost made you safer than everybody else because you didn't have that availability. So now you just operate in that you have that safety factor already built in, and it, like, where everybody else is, they had they had they might have had that that ability to extend. Now they're, they're operating loosely. That's a loose term, but loosely. Yeah. They're, operating, they're operating loosely, and there could be ramifications to that in, in, this, in this market. Well,
1: yes. Yes. And exactly what you do. Like you, you, you're very creative, and you're going to go out and, and meet with an owner of a land deal. Are you still there? Oh, I, yeah. I lost you there. Yeah. You can go out and meet with the owner of a land deal and figure out some terms and you could potentially buy buy these properties with little or no money down yep. or lock it up for a long period of time so you can go and, and bring in your capital from selling a piece of the property offer. All the different creative, cool things you do. Now, you've learned that because probably you were forced to. Yep. You didn't have unlimited resources, as much money as you could possibly have. So I had a buddy that started investing about the same time I did. Okay. Um, so we were, we were 21, 22 and he had family money. So he had a huge advantage on me. I was freaking broke, man. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have money growing up. I had to earn everything. I had to pay for my own school. I had to pay for my own cars. I had to pay for my own gas insurance. I didn't get any help. So I started investing in real estate. I had to learn how to do that without any cash. Right? So I created this creativity that once the, our career started going, he saw me accelerate much, much faster than he would because he wasn't able to structure deals the way I could. Ooh. And then I remember him sitting down, we were having some drinks and he, he sat me down and he's like, man, I wish I didn't have that ability to just go out and get capital. I wish I was forced to learn creative finance.
2: Boom.
0: One thing I love about this is I think a lot of people, they want the easy route, but the easy route might not be the best route and not knocking your friend at all. But I think when you're forced to go through the trenches, you learn. You get a lot of experience going through the trenches, mm-hmm. and it's priceless. You you really can't put a price on the education of going through the trenches.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you're doing right now, man. And and I know you have your fund coming up, and you're going to be doing some really special things. And and investors that are looking at something like that should have a lot of comfort because you've been in the trenches, right? You know what the hell you're doing.
0: Yeah, that's so cool, man. I I, I really I really appreciate that because it's, it's been hard, man. It's, and it, it was hard for, I'm, I'm sure it was hard for you for probably five years, maybe seven years.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> it was well fun. then I, well then I lost, I mean, I lost everything, right? Cause I, I went, I was, I went up to 2008 and I, I, I was so young and naive and nobody saw it coming. I mean, people say they did, but no one really saw it
2: coming. Yeah.
1: I certainly didn't. I wasn't smart enough to see that. And so I was not structured appropriately and man, it took me down and then I had to rebuild again. So, Millionaire long before I was thirty years old, lost it all and had to rebuild again.
0: That experience is
1: priceless. <laughs> just definitely helps, yeah. That's so now, cool. now I'm super conservative. You hear probably in my tone, like something's coming. Like I don't know what it is. I'm I'm just being very careful now because I've been through it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, that's amazing, man. I I, re- I really appreciate I really appreciate like the the struggle side of it because man, everybody looks at, everybody looks at like probably you now and you're like Oh, probably got a leg up and like, no, no, he, he struggled for a long time. <laughs> yeah. There was a long time struggle behind that. and You got to look a little deeper sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not so, a lot of uh, investors have been investing since before 2008. So they don't really know what's coming. Yeah. They don't, yeah. They don't quite understand. It's been, dude, it's been rainbows and roses and all of this unicorns for the last 15 years. We haven't that's seen that. a correction.
0: Yeah. I, and that's one thing I'm like, I I was, I mean, I was 2008, I was
1: 16,
0: you know, (laughs) and I, 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 the reason why I do stuff like this as a whole is because I want to listen to more experienced people and pay attention to what's happening. understand how every part of it works because if you understand how the financing works in your business, then it makes me operate my business accordingly. Because it all yeah. feeds into each other. Everything's connected, but not connected. And there's so many sub niches that affect each other through the line. You have to know a little bit about everything so you know how it flows.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to describe that. Especially with the stuff that you're working on, it's they call it the capital stack. So how how are you going to bring the money in to to take down the the project? It's like a, in residential, you don't really have a capital stack. It's usually a down payment alone, and it's pretty simple, right? When you start getting more complexity, then you you are going to start laying in different types of capital. So to understand private bridge money, it, it is important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's something that you might not understand, but you want to. You definitely want to understand because – and this is why I always ask, like, what the lending requirements on the back end of, of each lender that I talk to because that – Open, should open your eyes because every lender I've had on, I always, ask, I always ask them that question by itself because I want people to understand like what are they looking at as a whole when you have a deal? Because I think the biggest thing is finding great deals is always number one. But if you get some, the financing is always number two because you, you need, you, you need to a find the capital to close it or raise the money to capital to close it. And what terms are you offering? And this is really like, Hey, I heard Kevin on the podcast, He he's buying, this one's sold to value, I might need to get better deals, you know? Right.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. And I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I would just challenge it. The money's pretty darn important. So, in some cases, you might want to at least line up a loan or lender prior to finding a great deal, at least so you know you have some direction once you get it under contract. I hear all the time, the money will find you if you find a good deal. I, I just, It's just not always the case. So... I would maybe in tandem look for money and deals, but don't forget about the money,
0: man. Uh, I think right now we every deal we have we send like every lender we have till we lock them in, and then we move on to like we send every lender we have every deal because I don't know what they're gonna take, and we need to we need to lock everybody. In. We need to lock certain lenders in on certain projects, and depending on what because even with us in land, like I have people like. I don't want to do anything over 300,000. So anything under 300,000, we send to those guys. And then like, I want to do 500,000, but I want to do at least a couple of deals with you in the lower range. Now we're like, okay, we need to find more deals in the lower range just to get build up that credibility with them over time. So now we're on the hunt for smaller deals just because they have that comfortability of like half a million or more, but they want to do a couple of deals with us on, on the smaller range. Okay. So now we define smaller deals. So it's kind of like picking and choosing and kind of working that capital I'm working, I'm working the capital with the deals. So I'm actually finding the capital than the deals. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good, I honestly believe that's a great way to do it. And, and you're right. Lenders have different appetites and their appetites change. They do. Like for us, for example, I, I mentioned that we're tightening guidelines a little bit. Well, we, we've reduced our maximum loan from, we were doing deals over 6 million, which is small, but for us, that's big. And yeah. we lower it. So now we're not doing anything over 4 million because we just want to create more diversity over our portfolio. But that just changed like an overnight we met, we're like, let's stop doing it. If you and I talked a week ago and then we changed that and then, you know, you might be looking for a $6 million deal now, and now we can't do it anymore. So it's constant. It's a constant work in building those relationships.
0: And I think having constant communication with your lenders as a whole too, because that decision can be made overnight
1: and you need to in the private capital subs it's like institutions. They change too. Their appetites are constantly changing too, but private, in, private money for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, we just talked to a private money guy and I was telling him, I was like, maybe it's not the time. Maybe it's not the time. We, we need to build up a balance sheet a little bit more and we'll talk to you in a few months. And it is what it is. But the, I don't ever like push people away just because they, they didn't fit my, didn't fit our lending criteria right now. Like, that's just, let me put you in the Rolodex, and we'll add you. And if I get something that fits in your parameters, I know who to call next time. And we'll see if these something are going to be working. Because, I mean, it's really, really important to network with other lenders in your markets. So let's talk about that. What You said you're lending in Colorado, Texas, and Minnesota. Are you lending on uh, single-family and commercial in all three or in certain markets?
1: Yeah, so I, my hand moved to Texas. We're not quite lending there yet, but that is on the radar. Okay. So on the, on the resi- we're 80% residential, 20% commercial. So yep. we're heavy, heavy residential because I feel it's more liquid, it's yep. easier to cash flow, and safer. Yep. So I like that. On the residential side, we're Colorado, Minnesota. Those are our two primaries. We also do quite a bit in Wisconsin, and now we're doing deals in D.C. So we might do one or two deals a month in Washington, D.C. So there's a story behind each move. I know it's kind of scattered, but so those are the four markets we're in on the residential side. On the commercial side, we will look across the country. We're funding another one in Chicago um, this week, for example. So we're kind of spread out. But again, we're chasing those balance sheets. So we're looking for higher quality guarantee and a, a good, strong project.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. This is a side question more on the organizational side. What does it What does it take to become a... a- a lender in the United States as far as like through your, are you like, are you guys regulated? Do you have licenses? Do you have to follow a certain lender. I know you have to follow certain lender requirements, but like, like what does that look like on your side? Because I'm really curious about this one. Yeah.
1: So private money is very crazy. And, and the reason I say that is there's no federal regulation around yeah. it. So it's all state level. Some states require licensing and they have like reporting requirements and that kind of thing. And some don't. So for example, in Colorado, there, as long as I'm sticking to business purpose loans, I'm not doing any owner occupied. So only only residential if you're gonna flip it or, or rent it out and commercial. As long as I stay in that world, there's no licensing requirement or regulation at all in Colorado. In Minnesota, you do have to be licensed to do private money is if the collateral is residential property. So it doesn't matter what the purpose of the loan is, it matters what the collateral is. The difference is you don't have to have individual licensed mortgage officers, loan officers. It's only a company license. So see, it's a, it's like each state's going to be pretty unique. Yeah. Minnesota, we have reporting. We have to report um, once a quarter to the national mortgage licensing system, the NMLS. Now that's on the lending side. Now if you're going to start bringing in capital and start putting together funds or selling off notes or brokering private notes, there's a lot more regulation around that because now we're talking about securities laws. So in Colorado, to broker private notes, we have to have a securities license. Mm. It's called a mortgage broker dealer license. And so it's just a broker dealer, but it's dealing with mortgages and you've got to pass a securities exam. It's a series 63. Then you have to be bonded and you have to have all of that. So we have all of that in Colorado for the the transacting Loans that are originated, but you don't need the license to originate. And then Minnesota, opposite, you don't need a securities and license, but you need the lend money. You need the lender license. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So Crazy it's a,
0: it's a it's a little different. A little different for everything. And this is where I this is where like I, I think a lot of people they want to get in the financial side, but it, it seems uh, intimidating.
1: Sure. Yeah, it seems, because it's so capital intensive. Yeah. So let
0: me ask you this. So to get, to get bank capital, you have to have a balance sheet. To get private capital, it's just relationships, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, like what you're doing, raising money in a fund. It's, it's just that. So if I could meet a, an investor that's interested in investing in a fund and I can convince them that my fund is their right investment, then they're going to invest with me, right? And then I could go out and use that money to generate business. So it's just, just selling. You got to have a good product and you got to be credible.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which takes time. Takes <laughs> time.
0: Yeah. It takes time and experience. It takes time and experience. But I I I really like the financial side of it cause it's just like it's more the 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 the, va- the values in the paper and then the asset. You don't have to just have to do all the work.
1: <laughs> yeah, you said that in the in our episode, right? You can create more value with paper than you can do in construction or remodeling a property or something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a such a cool dynamic. What's the f-
0: future look like for you? Cause I know you said you're doing larger, larger deals. Now you're focusing more on that. Are you kind of hesitating that? I know you said you're kind of online your guidelines. Like what, what's, what's the future look like for you in the next like two to two to five years? Cause are you adapted to the market? You're still going to some bigger stuff or what, what's that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So on the pine financial side, we, we, I'll just be real transparent with you here. We, we generate revenue of around 7 billion. Okay. And we are, we want to go to 20. So I think once we hit that, then I'm gonna, I'll be uh, in a better position to take a step back. Yep. I'm sort of taking a step back now, but I, I've got an executive team, which is huge. Once you can get a good, solid leadership team, okay. then it allows you to get more flexibility. Uh, but I think I could take a big step back at that point, and I could focus more heavily on my own personal investments. So that's the pine side. My personal investment sides. I want to do more commercial. I don't like land, land development or land deals as you do. I, I'm more like. I want to reposition assets that are already there. So I'm looking for uh, retail and, and industrial. And the reason I'm, I'm focused on those two is because that's what a lot of my clients have done. So I've, I've just the rep, the reps, right. I've seen those deals over and over and over and I can see how it works. Yep. So I've, I've gotten on the auction sides and I've, I've bid on these and I haven't won anything yet. I'm, I'm working with brokers, bringing me deals, nothing is penciled yet, but I think that's going to change as, as the market softens. So, Got a little bit of dry powder, and I'm I'm ready to
0: pull the trigger when I see something like. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's uh, he's got to be active in the game, and I think 100. percent I, I I don't know. I don't push anybody because I think your experience is in those in those already creative deals because you've done that for years. So why why learn something new if you already have that experience and repetition and you already know that asset class? It's huge. It's huge notch in your belt that you, not a lot of people have. You know, are you playing an exit out of Pine Financial? Is that is that like a feature?
1: I it's so hard. That's a tough question to answer because ideally I'd like to pass it on. So okay. I'm I'm engaged and we've we've been together for seven years. She's got three kids. I have two. So we have a blended family of seven. Oh, amazing! And so we have a lot a lot of kids that may want to take over the business at some point and. And I, I talk to them about it, but they keep telling me, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. So I don't know if this is going to be a generational thing. We might exit at some point. Um, but if that's the case, my plan is to get it out so it's passive. Somebody else is running it, and it's just cruising, you know.
0: Income royalties, things. yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's very similar. Yep. But if the executive team who participates in the, in the upside chooses to sell, then, then I would be on board. Yeah, So I think I'm going to kind of leave it more up to them. My goal is just get to a point where I don't have to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, I think it's a great goal. And I, I, I really appreciate the, the passing down the fact, the thing, but a lot of people, a lot of kids don't understand and they might, they might regret that in the future, but you can't yeah. like force it down their throat.
1: <laughs> and there's a couple of entrepreneurs in the group, man. So who knows? We'll see, we'll see what happens.
0: Um, How, how what's the range of the, the, the seven kids?
1: Yeah, they're all really tight together. So it's between 13 and 17, and they're all five in that range. Woo! That's crazy, huh? They're, they're all yeah, they're all they all in the same black classes at school, and it's pretty fun.
0: That's that's pretty cool, man. Well, they're all right there. They're all right there. Anyone who can make the decision to at any moment. So I mean, I, you'll you'll probably know. I, I know I don't think you're retiring anytime soon, but I think you'll you'll know in the next ten, five to ten years.
1: Right. And real estate has been such a blessing to me. I can't even tell you how grateful I am for this, Yeah. Um, but I've been into in a position where my passive income is more than my expenses for, I've been in that position for years and years. I just love this so much. I would just like to be able to take a step back from pine because I want to focus more on my own. But I I enjoy, like you, I enjoy the deal structure. I love putting it together. I like that more probably than, than the pine stuff, but man, I'm having fun with this too.
0: It keeps you busy, and it's like you love what you do. It's not say work for you, you know.
1: Right, and I get to help people. Right, I help Absolutely. my investors make money in the fund. They, I get letters all the time about how it's changed their life to be able to consistently count on this consistency. And then I'm helping my borrowers, people that are borrowing the money, create, create financial freedom as well because they're out there fixing and flipping or or doing commercial deals, and they're all making money. So it's it's just a good business to be in. Is your back
0: end on the fund model?
1: as far as the capital stack? What do you mean? Is, the,
0: is, the, is your private capital on the fund model itself or is it like private-private?
1: So so we have multiple sources. So we, have, we actually have four mortgage funds. Three of them are Reg D's, which are private offerings, like you're not really allowed to advertise, you have to know um, that kind of thing. Now some of that's changed with the new laws with the Jobs Act and all that, but those three weren't like that. It was definitely build relationships and then make the offering. And our most recent one's a public fund, it's a reg A, so I could actually advertise that one. So we have four mortgage funds and we are layering in a little bit of uh, debt with lines of credit, but it's it's about 10% of the total portfolio, actually a little bit less than that. So we're still in a really strong position. And then we sell off individual loans when we need additional liquidity. So let's say we have a deal coming up that we need to fund. Yep. Um, we might sell some loans. That's where I need the license for, right? So I might sell some loans to generate some extra capital, so I can close on that loan. So it's kind of where we got it from different, many different sources, and there's revenue streams from each one, depending on which where the money is coming from.
0: Were you always on the on the on the fund model on the floor, or is it kind of recent
1: recent adaptation? We started the first fund in 2009, but in 2006 and 2008, when I was working with somebody else. All we did was private note like brokering, right? So I would bring in, let's say, John had a hundred grand, and and Sam wanted a hundred grand. I would just bring those two together and charge a fee for it. And then it, once I started two thousand in two thousand eight, I, I continued that model until I was getting feedback that hey, these it's getting too expensive. We need we need we need options where I'm not putting all my money into one deal. So I need more diversification, a lower investment amount. And I want some liquidity. Look, pr- debt isn't liquid, is despite what you hear. You can sell notes, but there's not a market for it. So it's, if you don't know somebody who wants it, then you're going to probably have to discount the note to get it sold. So it's not, we don't call notes liquid, right? But they wanted liquidity. So if you created a fund and you're invested in a lot of projects that are paying off and go money's coming and going, there's some velocity there that created the liquidity of much lower investment amount. And then obviously the diversification. So we started that fairly early in the career about one year into uh fine starting.
0: Oh okay, okay that's good.
1: Yeah, And we it's just been a different fund each time we hit a threshold from the Securities and Exchange Commission, we start a new fund.
0: Yeah, Well, one thing I I've noticed now that I've been delving into the fund space is that a lot of companies are, I I didn't, I didn't know that till I asked that question. So like, a lot of people they use the fund the fund side of it, but don't actually. I mean, a they can't. Sometimes they can't say. And B like there's, it gives them a lot of, it gives them a lot of like amplification of capital that is really required in some of these businesses, and that's what I'm, that's how I'm learning, is that yeah. a lot of people more, a lot, a lot more people use it than you think, and the people that use it are really sometimes using, big, doing big, thing, bigger things than normal because they have that in their back pocket.
1: Well, you know that all came out of the Jobs Act, right? They, they, they start the reggae. The reggae plus came out of that law, so they're allowing small companies like you and me to publicly advertise our security now. That was never a thing, right, So they're trying to. And I say they. I'm just talking about lawmakers in general. They're yeah. trying to make it. They're trying to make it help companies to create more jobs, right? That was the whole point. So if we, if we could help them raise the capital they need, then it's going to create jobs, and that's that's good for the for the country. So that's that's where it, where it all came from.
0: Yeah, I I think I've I've learned a lot over like the last six six twelve months because I realized that there's a lot of good businesses out there they're just not funded properly. So once you get the right funding, you can really amplify and create a lot of business opportunity, wealth wealth creation, job creation, asset creation. I mean even development or remodeling like that whole there's a whole thing that comes in that once you get the once you get the capital in place and it's just um, doing, doing, creating the right vehicle for people to invest in. It's all this.
1: Yeah. And this is something good for you to know with your, your fund coming up. It's probably going to be a lot of accredited investors I would assume. So you're going to want accredited investors. So there, there there's some discussions right now, Daniel, that, that they will make, they were going to add an educational requirement to become accredited. So you don't necessarily need to hit the financial requirements that we have set today. There may be an option for somebody that wanted to invest with you to go through a little class and maybe take a small exam all online and then they would qualify as accredited and then you could accept them as an investor. So we'll see where that goes, but that's gonna open up a lot of potential investors to us.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. So I I think I think the the accredited investor requirements, they're I mean, people hit them, but it's it's very hard to hit them as as especially getting this is where i think like the threshold to make to become wealthy you have to have money and it always like it always like hinders the people that that are starting from scratch so i think i think opening up that threshold i think it creates a lot more opportunity because a lot of people don't even understand they they mightn't even heard accredited investor term.
1: yeah well, it's, it's kind of a weird requirement because they, they use the, the accredited investor to so the government knows they don't need to be as careful with them. They don't have to protect them as much as the non-accredited. But what's interesting is because it's a, a net worth requirement, the main one is a net worth requirement, people might have an inheritance, right? And get, get this money, then all of a sudden become accredited and not know what the, they're doing. Yep. Right? And they're going to be investing in projects, and they don't know how to analyze risk. So it, it's weird that it's only a, a financial requirement when yeah, yeah. that doesn't really tell you much about their sophistication, right?
0: 100%. 100%. There's 100% wealth bathed down, and then it just fucking disappears into the ether from bad GPs and bad funds and carelessness. That's right.
1: Careless. Yeah, So maybe an education piece makes a ton of sense. That, that's a better way to keep people safe,
0: no, I, I, I believe. That, that's, that's huge. I think that's huge, man. Education, I think is, is should be paramount with everything. And I think if, if you are, have, if you are a credit investor and don't know what you're doing, please get educated because that, that, that opens up like your, I always advise people, like people that inherit money, like I always tell them like, dude, you, you could do this. You can do, there's a lot of things you could do, but if you don't know what to do with it and and how to make money with money, you're going to burn it and you're going to burn it real quick. I mean, I, I see it all the time with people in you know, <laughs> capital and you hear the horror stories of the lottery people. And it's just, it's a, it's a bad, it, it, it's, it's a hindrance more than a help to some people.
1: Oh, it's, it's an amazing statistic, which I don't know what it is right now, but the number of inheritance that are supposedly generational that last one generation, Yeah, gone. like a stack, like 90% or something. It's like staggering how much, if you don't teach your kids and educate them, when they get the inheritance, it just goes away.
0: Here's a here's the here's the parent question: How are you instilling that in your kids?
1: It's tough, man, because we live in a neighborhood like a nicer neighborhood, and there's like all the kids are getting their cars paid for, and they're all turning sixteen right now because that's where the age that we're at. Yeah, all all the parents are buying them cars and paying their debt, and they're doing all this, and we're not we're just not doing that. So now our kids are they feel like they are a huge disadvantage because we have one car that they can all share until you out, go out and save up and buy your own. Um, and so they're, they're learning an extremely difficult lesson right now, right there. They have to go out and work. Um, we play cash flow. I don't know if you, if you know the game, I have, get, I, have, I have, I have it. Yeah. I love that game and, and it gives you such a great opportunity to go through different lessons with the kids. So, we'll sit down and play it and then we'll start getting more creative. Like, Oh, you want to buy this property? It, there's no rules here, right? In this game. So you're just like, well, why don't why don't you you two partner up with me and then we'll buy this property. And then we'll split the profit. And we start talking like real life examples on how I we can that. do this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but that game allows for that. Right? So we, we, we play that game and then man, I've been trying to, they're all working. We're trying to get them to start being interested in buying. Right? So two of them two of the middle, look at uh, Branson and Maddie. They're going to start running our Instagram, not Instagram, our TikTok. What I'm not on TikTok. Yeah. So it's, it's the TikTok one. They're, they're, they're they've been telling me for years, I got to get on TikTok. I got to start doing this. So I made them put together a presentation. They did it all on PowerPoint. They came in, they presented to our leadership team. They went through the whole slide deck and, and gave the presentation and then they just got the job offer. So now we're getting ready to start this new social media thing and, I, I'm just—I'm trying to think of different ways to, you know, make sure that they're not spoiled because it is difficult to do that when you have the ability.
0: Yeah, I—I I, I really appreciate that. That's so so awesome. I love that you're using creative. Let's partner and get this deal done. You know, I love that. That's So cool. Man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's the right way to play the game, man. Like, how how do we? We're trying to get out of the rat race here. Like, what can we do? I can't afford
0: this property. Well, how can I afford it? Let's, let's talk as a group. What, what can we do? That's, that's, that's so cool. I've never heard anybody do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I really, I'm I'm, like, I said, my, my kids are younger. My kids are younger. So I'm like the reason, this is the reason why I do the podcast as a whole, because like, I can't have this conversation with my, with my five-year-old. Right. So this is why I, I record a lot of these conversations because they're there forever, you know? I doubt YouTube is going anywhere for a long time. So, right. watch YouTube.
1: <laughs> you're not far from starting to play that game with them, man. I think they were, they might have been seven-ish, seven, eight, something like that—and we started playing that game. So, you're not far off. It's just—it's a little harder because of the math is tricky for them. But
0: yeah, I'm—I'll I'm, probably wait until that point because I and mean, yeah.
1: they can't even speak clearly right now. <laughs> <laughs> a couple years though, yeah, they might be wanting to buy some real estate.
0: <laughs> no, I—I I, I think it's—I think it's huge. And I, I, I like I like to get a question to heart too because like when I grew up, we all had one car, and that's how we grew up. Like my older brother drove us all to school, and then they all got they all worked a job till they afforded their own car, and then the car got passed down to the next driver, and that's how kind of how it was. And then my dad got me a car, but it was, he probably paid like a grand for it. He's like, oh, here's your car, and it broke down like a week later. <laughs>
1: Yeah. that's funny. That's how that's I grew up too. I paid mean, nine hundred dollars for my first car, and it broke down all the time. But I learned how to work with cars because of it, right? It was, like we we're talking about earlier. It
0: yeah. I remember after I had a good, I got a really good job when I was like eighteen. I was making like seventeen an hour. I bought, I bought a new pickup truck. It was like four hundred bucks a month, and I'm like, you know what? let just buy a new pickup truck, and that's what I did. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the big like two ton four-wheel drive, all that stuff. It was a little tiny like, it was a Nissan Frontier. It was a tiny pickup truck. It got me to point A to point B, and I needed a reliable car, but I got that. That, that car spent a lot more to me because
1: I bought it with my own money. You know? That's right. That's exactly, <laughs> and you took care of it, right? And I did take care of it. So, You're not taking care of this shared car there.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. <It's laughs> this done. Is your car next. You have it. <laughs> exactly. Here's the keys. That's, that that's, that that that's got to be interesting with all the kids around that age. What's the shared car? Cause you got seven kids. Like, is it a minivan?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The shared, uh, so we drive a Yukon extended. So that's the one. And it fits us all comfortably. Okay. The, the shared car that they're all using is a, just a pilot. Okay. It's got, it's got the third row, but so I'm, I'm considering switching that out for something that only has two seats in it though. Ooh. Because you know what happens is this turns into the, the community car. So now it's like all of the friends pile in and, I, mean, I think I saw eight or nine kids crawl out of that thing one time and I'm like, I, I know there's not nine seatbelts. so then when you have the biggest car, then everyone rides with you.
0: That's true. I think my, my deterrent is uh making it stick shift.
1: I don't know if I could find one. Yeah, that'll take the texting and driving. I will make it hard to text and drive, right? Yeah. I want that. I want that bad but can you find those? Where I mean where you can get one of those.
0: I mean you can go you can search I remember when I bought my new truck, my new truck that I bought when I was uh twenty one, twenty two, that was uh I went to the dealer and asked for it. And I they, 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 they found one. And if they don't have one they'll order it for you and it takes a a few months if you're buying it new. But if you if you go if you're buying it used, you can go to stuff places like Carmax and search for the different types of transmissions. So you can search for a manual transmission vehicle. Ah, oh, that's interesting.
1: I but, might do that,
0: man. Do they know how to drive it? No, because we have a. They don't
1: even. I don't know if they've seen one. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, that's my deterrent. That's. A, I'm, I want to buy. I want to buy a stick tip pickup truck now, that way I can give it to them and I'll take care of it and they can have the the the, the old pickup truck that's twenty years old, you know, but it's a 2000. <laughs> 2005, <laughs> you know, it's gonna be a historic vehicle,
1: you know. <laughs> Yeah, I might, I might do that. So they, we've cruised around on four wheelers, so they know how to shift. But the four wheelers didn't have a clutch, so they don't, they don't know the, you know, the, they don't know how that feels. But gosh, I think I could teach it pretty quickly. Do you know how to drive stick? Oh yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. As long as, as long as somebody knows how to drive, I, I mean, that's one thing I'm trying to do with my kids. Is and they're all young, but I'm trying to instill the. It's, it's already in my mind. They're getting a stick shift. I don't really care because no, no friend's gonna drive a stick shift because. By the time my kids turn sixteen, seventeen years old, no one's gonna know how to drive that.
1: No one knows how to drive that. But it's funny, you go over to Europe. Say, so we went over to Germany. We were gonna we cruise on down the Autobahn, and you have to you you rent a car, obviously, and there's like all stick shifts. All stick shifts. I was like, I thank God I knew how to do that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been on our excursion that day.
0: I, I've been thinking about that too. I've been thinking about importing a car from Europe. One, because I want to drive on the on the on the on the opposite side of the vehicle, just mess with people. I remember the first time I saw that, uh, it was somebody had a Jeep and they're on the right side. I'm like, I had a, like double double take enough, and yeah. it was a stick shift. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. I just want to mess with people.
1: <laughs> so they they drive on the left side in uh, the Bahamas and they don't have a ton of stoplights on those islands down there. So that it's all, it's all like roundabouts. Yeah. you would, Something would throw you off, go on a roundabout the wrong way. That's, that yeah. takes a little bit of getting used to, because you're on the left side, so you go yep. into the roundabout around the left, yep. you know. And yeah, I was on a, I was on a moped, and I went the wrong way. Dude, <laughs> Just, these cars come flying around. I'm like, oh shit! Jumped up on the sidewalk in my little moped. That'll my first it. roundabout in the Bahamas. yeah.
0: That'll do it. That'll do yeah, it. I
1: had no idea. <laughs> Pretty funny. It's so scary.
0: <laughs> this is such a such a good podcast. Where what's your what's your where people find you online, and uh, what's your podcast again?
1: Yeah, the podcast is real estate educators. It's on all the platforms. I had a great time with you, Daniel. When you came on, learned a lot from you. Thank you for that. I am going to implement some of what I've learned. You can find. We talked a little bit about the market and the opportunities coming. So we wrote the report the, um, comparing the 1990s crash, which none of us were really old enough to understand. Yep. Um, but I, I definitely researched that and I understand that that it's right after the savings alone. Super high inflation, super high interest rates, right? That's what created that crash. And that's sort of the simula- similar to what we're in right now. So I compared those two and I wrote a report about it. I think that will shed some light on what, we're, what you may expect to come. Um, so you can get that report for free at thepinereport.com. ThepineReport.com. Otherwise, reach me at einfinancialgroup.com. I see you put it there on the screen. einfinancialgroup.com.
0: Amazing, amazing, man! I think I said this last time, but you're one of my favorite guests. Ah, thank you. <laughs> I have a great time with you, man. This is uh It's always fun, and like I, I hope uh, it wasn't one of the. I, I was trying to switch it up as far as like the topics and questions, and it's always good. It's always a good time, but I appreciate the the honesty and the the parenting advice and. I appreciate all that.
1: It's good stuff. Yeah, and you, you've got a, you got a ways to go here, but you're kid, five-year-olds, man. That's amazing time. Yeah.
0: it's uh, my, my, my three-year-old's a tyrant. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> if you're hearing this, I'm
1: fine with that.
0: You are. You are. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all oh, right.
1: That's awesome.
0: For everybody here, thanks for tuning in. Go like, share, subscribe. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Please go follow Primefinancialgroup.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks,
1: Andrew. Hey, guys. So The Hive Mind is launching a new program where we are we're helping you work deals that are valued at $1 million and up. If your deal is worth $980,000, we don't want to take a look at it. You can submit those deals to us at submitbigland.com, and we'll help you comp the deals. If it's good, we'll help you close it, and we'll also help you fund it and sell it. Check us out, submitbigland.com. Million dollar mastermind.com and Wholesaling Million Dollar Land Deals on Facebook. Thanks, guys.